Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this time that we can gather in your name, that when we come before you, we come knowing who you are and that our worship is pleasing and acceptable in your eyes. Lord, as we worship you by looking at your word, may it be helpful to us. May your Holy Spirit be speaking through me this morning and help open our eyes to what you have said in this part of your word and who we are and how we should behave towards you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the highlights of my days, every day, is getting the mail. That can be getting the mail, uh, postal mail. Uh, I, I still don't understand why Australia Post only delivers Monday to Friday. They should at least do Saturday as well, so I have an extra trip to the mailbox. But getting mail is always exciting because you don't know what's there, what's come. And same with email. I went through a period there where I was checking my email constantly or at least set up my program, uh, my, my um, application so that it download mail automatically and tell me because uh, email is so exciting to receive and I then realised that that is a major distraction so I try and restrict myself to checking it twice a day uh, so that I'm not constantly distracted by this thing that I'm always fascinated to look at. Mail. Mail is always fun to receive. Some, uh, except for some occasions. There are certain letters that you get that you are not uh, so pleased to have received, but generally it's exciting to at least the unknown of what might be in your inbox, your email account, or in your letterbox. And when we look at the mail, we have to do a couple of things when we receive a letter. Firstly, we have to look at who it's from. And we can usually tell this uh, from uh, the letterheads, if we get a snail mail in the post box, you can see uh, indicated whether it's from your bank, the, the logo's up there in the corner, and you can sort of tell straight away that this is a bill, and I'll put that one to one side. Uh, whereas other mail, you can see, oh, this is a letter from my parents or uh, from someone overseas, and so it's exciting, and so you, you, you put that one as sort of a priority as the ones that you're going to open first. And then secondly, you confirm that the letter is for you. But we don't always do this. And so often you can open someone else's mail. You assume if it's come in the letterbox to you that it is to you. But sometimes you quickly open all the mail there and you realise that it wasn't addressed to you at all and that you're reading somebody else's mail. And this can happen uh, with your inbox as well, uh, with email. It comes in and you suddenly realise as you start to read down that this isn't actually intended to you, uh, to be for you, that it was intended for someone else, the email addresses got mixed up or something. So secondly, you look at who it is from, uh, whether it is to you. And today we have a letter before us as well. I've uh, decided that I'm going to look at 1 Peter for some time. Uh, I don't know how long. But this morning we're going to look at the first two verses of 1 Peter. And this book that we call 1 Peter is a letter. It's always good when you look at a piece of uh, God's word that you recognise what sort of writing it is. And as most of the New Testament is, this is a letter. And it's, we've, so we've got to ask a couple of questions as we look at it together. And that's the questions that I have as my main points this morning. I have three questions that we're going to ask of this letter. And the first question is that thing that we do of all letters. We ask the question, who is the letter's author? Who is the letter's author? And it's quite obvious, it's up there at the front of the letter. Verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter is the author 
of this letter. Who is Peter? Who was Peter? Who is this person called Peter? Well, Peter is that one that we know in the Gospels who is the headstrong fisherman that Jesus asked to become one of his disciples. He's that man who follows after Jesus, makes some very good statements, makes some very foolish statements. He denies Jesus three times when Jesus is on trial, but then we see that he is reinstated by Jesus later after Jesus has been raised from the dead. That is the Peter that wrote this letter. But he doesn't just call himself Peter, he calls himself an apostle of Jesus Christ. He doesn't just make you recall who he is by name, he says, Remember, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. Why does he include that piece of information there, that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ? Well, it's like his credentials. It's kind of like the letterhead that we have on letters to show that this is really a bill from Optus and not someone else trying to get you to pay money to a company, a more fraudulent company. No, it shows that he is an authority. He is the apostle of Jesus Christ and so he speaks as one who has authority. What sort of authority? Well, one from Jesus Christ. What does that mean then? That he has an authority from God. And so when he speaks, he speaks as an apostle from God. And it means he has that authority. What is an apostle? Well, an apostle is a sent one. The word apostle comes from the Greek word apostello, which means to send. And so he sent from God to speak God's words. And so when we look at this letter here and we see Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, we don't just think, oh, this is a human letter written as just like Joel could write this letter. No, it is God's word as well. It's not just Peter's words. These are God's words and he has written this letter as well. So that's the author. Who is the author? Peter and God. Second question, who is the letter's audience? Who is the letter's audience? That's the thing we ask of letters. Uh, Who is this being written to? And we've got a few clues as to who it is written to here. There's a few descriptions given to us. First one says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to, which indicates what's coming is going to be who it's to, to God's elect. God's elect. This letter is to God's elect. What does it mean that people are God's elect? What does it mean to be elected? Well, it means to be chosen. We're going to have elections later this year uh, to choose uh, a new Prime Minister of this country or at least a party to go in. You just see with the British news that they've got the hung parliament now and uh, that complicates things. Uh, with, uh, with, at the end of the year, there's going to be an election. There's going to be a choosing that goes on. And God had his own election as well where he chose certain people to belong to him. People to be Christians, people to be his people. Now that may be news to some of you. You may think that when you became a Christian, you had your election. You chose God, not God chose you. But this is something that the Bible makes clear, is that God chooses, not you choosing God when you become a Christian. But the problem with that is, is once you realise that, it starts to be a problem in your head because it doesn't seem to make sense that 
When you became a Christian, it was because God chose you and had nothing to do with you at all. It seems to seem it seems to make out that God is not that you are not responsible for becoming a Christian. That if God is in complete control and chooses you, how can He blame you for not being a Christian if you can't choose Him? And so we have this conflict that goes on between God's sovereignty and choosing and our responsibility to become a Christian. Well, people have debated over this subject for, the, for centuries and some people tap into the idea of God's foreknowledge for solving the problem. And so they go down into verse 2 and they see something else that's said there about God's choosing. It says in verse 2, "...who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father." How does foreknowledge solve this problem between God choosing us but we are responsible for becoming Christians? Well, they say that God foreknew what we would do and so he chose those ones he knew would choose him. So the foreknowledge of God is that he knows things in the future and he looked ahead to... You know, when I became a Christian uh, back in uh, 1992 and he saw that Joel Radford would choose to be a Christian in 1992 and so when God had his election he used that insight and said I'm going to choose Joel Radford to be one of my people and so it will be okay. But of course the problem with that is, is that it puts the sovereignty back on man. It puts the sovereignty back on Joel Radford in 1992 because God is obligated then to choose the person that then chooses him. And so God is not sovereign in his choosing at all. He's obligated by my choosing in 1992. And so it is not God's sovereignty anymore, it is Joel Radford's sovereignty. And so that doesn't solve the problem because we know the Bible is clear that God is sovereign in all things, including man's salvation. So what does Peter mean by putting foreknowledge here then? Well, what he is saying is that God planned all things. He had his election and so of course he foreknows those things. If you go to the shops, it's not because you just suddenly uh, happen to be there No, you planned to go there. You foreknew that you were going to go to the shops. Now, sometimes you don't quite make it for various reasons, but if you show up at the shops, it's not because you didn't know that you were going to be there. You planned to go there, so you foreknew that you were going to be there. And it's the same with God. He has foreknowledge because he has determined all things. So, of course, he knows what's going to happen. He's planned it. He knows about it. It's no surprise to him. And so that's what it means when it says who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. It is logical that he has foreknowledge of the things that he has planned just as we have foreknowledge of the things that we plan and that we end up doing. So then how do we resolve this conflict of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility in becoming Christians if foreknowledge doesn't solve it? Well, I don't have an answer. The Bible says quite clearly that both are true. God is sovereign. He is the one who does the choosing. And if you don't turn to him, you are responsible. I can't reconcile them together. I just know that the Bible presents both clearly. You can't put responsibility back on God if you don't become a Christian and you can't be sovereign in your salvation. And so we have to accept them if we accept the Bible as our final authority. If you accept your brain and your human logic as your final authority, you won't accept them. 
But if you accept the Bible as your final authority, then you have to accept them and understand that God can make it work somehow. In his infinite wisdom, compared to your finite wisdom, he can reconcile them, but you in your finite wisdom cannot. And so you simply trust that this is so. Now you don't let this prevent you from becoming a Christian. This doctrine here. Jesus welcomes all those who will return to him in repentance and faith. And so if you want to become a Christian, I tell you, repent and believe. Turn to him and if you truly do so, it shows that you are chosen by God and foreknown by him. He will not stop you coming to repentance and faith. If you want to come, come to him in repentance and faith. And by doing so, you show that you are chosen by him and foreknown by him. So, this letter, who's it to? Well, it's to God's elect, to those who are chosen by him and foreknown by him. How else are they described? We've actually got six descriptors here. The first is that they're chosen by him. The second is that they're strangers in the world. What's a stranger? Well, it's someone who, uh, the old English word was alien, but these days if you use the word alien, you think of little green men coming down in spaceships. And so I don't think new English translations uh, should probably use the word alien anymore. But it, it, uh, in, uh, alien means that you don't belong. Just as little green men, they don't belong here. Their home is another planet. And so it is with the people that this letter is written to. They belong somewhere else. Where they're currently residing isn't their home. And that is true of Christians. They're strangers in the world. This isn't their home. Where is their home? Well, it's heaven itself. Heaven is the home that we belong to. We are just temporarily residing here. And so this letter is written to strangers in the world, people who don't live here permanently, but are just passing through on their way to heaven. What else does it say about them? Well, it says that they're scattered throughout and then it has those uh, five names there, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. They're scattered throughout the world. So in Peter's time, Christians weren't gathered in one place. They weren't all gathered at Jerusalem. If you became a Christian, you had to make a pilgrimage and stay in a certain area. No, they scattered out. And it's the same today as well. You can be a Christian in Grimoyne, but you can also be a Christian in London. You can be a Christian in the United States. You can be a Christian in Jerusalem if you are there as well. You can be a Christian anywhere. You can be scattered throughout the world. And that is what is supposed to happen. We aren't supposed to stay in one spot. And you see regularly in Acts that God scatters people, usually by persecution, scatters the Christians out so that they actually get out, stop hanging around one another all the time, get out there and tell people about Jesus Christ. We're supposed to be scattered throughout the world. We're supposed to be scattered to places like Des Moines so that we can share the gospel with those who do not know the truth about Jesus Christ. So it's to God's elect, strangers and scattered ones. What else? Well, we go down to verse 2, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So that ties back in with the one that we saw with God's elect in verse 1. And then we see, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. This letter is written to people who are sanctified through the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to be sanctified? It's a word that occurs commonly in the Bible. 
And so we can breeze over it without thinking, what does it mean to be sanctified? Sanctified means to be set apart, to be made holy, to be made something other than what we are. What does it mean then to be sanctified as a human? It means to become something that you are not yourself. And so that means to become like God, to become godly, to become holy like the Holy One who has revealed himself in the Bible. So these people who are receiving this letter, who the letter is addressed to, are people who have become like God. They have become godly. They have become set apart. They have become holy. When does this happen? When does sanctification take, take place? Well, it happens in two areas. It happens when you become a Christian, you become holy because Christ's righteousness is put across to you, your holiness, uh, his holiness becomes your holiness and so you become sanctified in his eyes. But there is also an ongoing sanctification that we see as well that happens to Christians, that we are progressively sanctified to become what we already are. We have to live up to what we already are. And so we still sin, but we should gradually see that sin moving into the background as we become more and more holy and more like God. So it's written to sanctified people who are being sanctified as well as have been sanctified. And then what is the result of this sanctification? Well, we have two more descriptors about these people who the letter is written to. Verse 2 who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for, indicating that this is a result, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Two last descriptors of the people who this letter is written to. They're obedient to Jesus Christ. That means if we want to be holy, we have to be obedient to Jesus Christ. We aren't obedient to ourselves anymore and what we dictate. No, we have a new Lord in our lives and that is Jesus. And so we obey him. And that is who this letter is written to, people who are being obedient to Jesus Christ. And then lastly, sprinkling by his blood. These people have been sprinkled with Jesus' blood. Now what does that mean? It sounds kind of gross when you first think of it to have blood sprinkled upon you. Uh, the only other time I've heard of sprinkling of something other than water, or, well, I've actually witnessed it, was at a rock concert I went to. I used to, um, yes, attend rock concerts. Uh, and this one uh, was, there was heavy metal. It was one of those ones where they have different bands playing all day. And I did like this band and I was there in the crowd, thankfully not as close to the stage as I probably would have liked to have been, because of what then happened, uh, the, the lead singer of the rock concert of this band, he had uh, beer there and he took a swig of it uh, but didn't swallow and then just sprayed it, sprinkled it out onto the crowd. And of course, everyone who loves the band is really close to the front and so they didn't treat it as something gross. I think they treated it as something wonderful that they now had uh, the saliva mixed with beer uh, sprinkled upon them uh, from this person. Sprinkling of something other than water is kind of gross. So what does it mean that sprinkling of his blood? Do you want blood sprinkled upon you? What is the reference here that, it mean, that is indicated by the sprinkling of Jesus' blood? Well, we have to go back to the Old Testament to understand some of this. In the Old Testament, blood was sprinkled on a number of occasions. 
And we see that with the reading that we had from Exodus 24 where Moses sprinkles blood on the altar of an animal. He sprinkles it on the altar and he sprinkles it on the people. And he does it when he's making a covenant. as uh, uh, God is making a covenant through Moses with the people. And what is that indicating? It's indicating that because of the people's sin, death has to happen. And that death happens in the animal so that they are forgiven. And so when they become part of the covenant that is made with them, blood must be a part of it. Or otherwise they cannot be in relationship with God because they need to be punished for their sins with death. But instead the blood of the animal is sprinkled upon them and they are considered clean. But the blood of the animals never really took away sin. All it was doing was pointing to the sacrifice that would take away sin, that of Jesus Christ. When Jesus died on the cross, his blood was shed and it was figuratively sprinkled on people. Those who put their trust in his death are sprinkled with his blood, which makes them clean. All the sin that we commit makes us very dirty. We do not often consider it as making us very dirty because we like to think that we are good people and not bad. But we do know often about certain sins that they make us feel guilty, they make us feel dirty and we need to be clean of those sins. And the way that that happens, the only way that it can happen is through the sprinkling of blood and a particular type of blood, Jesus' blood. The blood of animals won't take it away, only the blood of Jesus Christ. And so these people who receive this letter are sprinkled with Jesus' blood. So we've seen six things described of these people, six things that the letter is written to these people. They're chosen, they're strangers, they're scattered, they're sanctified, they're obedient and they're sprinkled with blood. My third question to ask this morning is are you the letter's audience? We've looked at who's the letter author, who was the letter's original audience. My question is are you the letter's audience? Are you someone who receives this letter from Peter the Apostle and therefore from God himself. Do you receive this as the very words of God? Are you one of God's chosen by his, according to his foreknowledge? Is this letter for you because you're one of his chosen? Now how do you know that you're one of his chosen? Well, if you repent and believe and truly do so, you show that you are one of his chosen. By living according to his laws, you show that you are chosen by him according to his foreknowledge. If not, if you are not one of, Jesus cho- uh, one of God's chosen, then you are reading someone else's mail here this morning. This letter isn't addressed to you. And we continue. Are you a stranger in this world? Or are you quite content in this world that your home is not, this, uh, is, is not another place. You're happy here. You're not an alien at all. If that is you, you're content here and you're not seeking to go back to your home, then this letter is not written to you. Are you sanctified by the Spirit? 
Have you been made holy inside through the Spirit and are being made holy? If not, then this letter is not to you. Are you being obedient to Christ or are you simply being obedient to yourself or someone else? If not, then this letter is not for you and you are reading someone else's mail. Are you sprinkled by Jesus' blood or do you consider that blood language too horrible and kind of gross and very condemning of people and that blood needs to be shed to absolve from sin? You kind of think it's a bit icky. Well, then this letter is not for you and you are reading someone else's mail when you read this. Now, maybe you say it's no big deal that I'm reading someone else's mail. I read other people's mail all the time. Uh, I like to receive other people's mail and to have a bit of a sticky beak about what they have, uh, what people are saying to them. And we have a tendency to do that. That's why we read um, books of people's letters where they publish you know, people's letters from long ago. We kind of have an interest in reading other people's mail. And so you say, oh, it's no big deal that this letter isn't to me. I'm quite content to read somebody else's mail. Well, then the greeting that is given here and the content later means you aren't greeted in this way. And what is the greeting that is given in verse 2? We haven't looked at it, but it's there. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. That greeting is not for you if you are not chosen by God, uh, through the sanctifying work of him, a stranger in the world, scattered, obedient to Jesus, sprinkled by his blood, you do not have grace and peace. You do not have God's mercy towards you and you do not have peace with him. You are at war with him. And it means that you aren't sprinkled with his blood and that you are still a dirty person because of your sins. That is why it's so vital that this letter should be for you. If you're here this morning and you have not trusted in Jesus' blood for yourself, if you have not repented of your sins and taken him as your Lord so that you are obedient to him, then I encourage you to do it this morning. Stop reading someone else's mail and read your mail instead. Be made holy and become holy progressively throughout your life and read this letter not as someone else's mail, but read it as your own mail. But if this letter is to you, that you look at these six things and tick them and go, yes, 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 oh, so this letter is my letter, it is to me from God himself, I ask you, if you are a Christian and these things do speak about you, do you delight in the truths described about you here? Do you find grace and peace in the fact that God chose you? It is one of the most humbling things we can consider that God chose you and if he did not, you would not be saved. Consider that, that he could have passed over you and moved on to the next person and chosen them instead. It is a wonderful truth that tells of God's mercy and his grace towards you and it should give you peace. If God chose you and was gracious towards you, then he is going to continue being kind and gracious to you throughout your life and you'll continue to find peace in him. Do you also find grace and peace in that you have been made holy and are being made holy? It's a wonderful truth to be reminded of that we are sanctified, that when God looks upon us, he doesn't see our dirt and our sin. He sees Christ's holiness and that by his power we can become 
more and more holy, more and more sanctified. That is a wonderful sign of his love for us, his grace, and gives us such peace that he is helping us become more and more obedient to Jesus Christ. And do you find grace and peace in the fact that you are becoming obedient to Jesus Christ? It is a wonderful thing that we can know how to obey Jesus. That God hasn't said, I want you to be obedient, but I'm not going to tell you how. That he has revealed in his word how to be obedient if we just listen to Jesus. The problem is we often don't want to listen to Jesus because we'd rather be obedient to ourselves. It is a wonderful evidence of God's grace that he has actually told us how to be obedient. That we can study the Sermon on the Mount and say, if I do this, I am obedient to God and he will be pleased with me and I will have peace with him. Do you find grace and peace in the sprinkling of his blood to know that his sacrifice has cleansed you, that you do not have to shed your own blood for your sins, but blood has been shed for you and it is sufficient in God's eyes. Being a stranger and scattered throughout the world is not always pleasant. I know the few times that I've been away from home that it's, uh, it's not the nicest of experiences. When I particularly think of the time when I went away on placement when I was at university and I had to go away and uh, work at a podiatry practice for a couple of weeks up at Port Macquarie and I lived in a backpackers hostel. It's not the nicest of environments. You're away from all your friends, you're away from all your family uh, and you're away from the comforts of your home and it's not the most peaceful experience. And so it is as Christians. To be strangers in the world, to have a home somewhere else, means you're homesick for your home. And that's not a pleasant experience. And to be scattered away from your family and friends, as you may do as a Christian, is not the most pleasant of experiences. But the wonderful thing is that while we are strangers and scattered, we can still enjoy ourselves. God doesn't say you're going to have nothing good in this world and then in the next world we'll be where it's all okay. He says, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Not in the next life, in abundance now as well. You will have it in abundance in the next life but you can have it in abundance now. And so when I was in Port Macquarie and I was the, uh, the leader of my meals, I had Hungry Jacks for lunch and dinner every day for the entire time that I was away. It was a wonderful experience. I had Whoppers for for lunch and then I'd have other burgers for dinner and I'd sample all across the Hungry Jack's board because my mother was no longer dictating what I was to have for meals. And so it is as strangers scattered as Christians throughout the world. We can still enjoy ourselves while we are here. We have grace and peace in abundance. Do you have grace and peace in abundance? Because you are God's elect, because you're a stranger, because you're scattered, because you've been uh, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood, do you have grace and peace in abundance? I hope that you have those six things uh, ticked yes next to your name so that you do have grace and peace. In abundance. Let us speak with our good God now. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the encouragements that this letter brings to us. That if we are your people, 
that we have grace and peace in abundance from you. Lord, help us to embrace these truths about us, that we are chosen by you, that we are sanctified, that we can be obedient to Jesus Christ, that we are sprinkled by his blood. Lord, these are such wonderful statements of truth about Christians. And Lord, we pray that anyone here this morning who has not these things, Lord, we pray that they may consider where they are, that they do not have grace and peace. They do not have it in abundance. They do not have it at all. And we pray that they may repent of their sins and believe in the sprinkling of Jesus' blood this morning. May they not delay and may they join us again next Sunday not to read someone else's mail but to read mail that is addressed to them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to sing once more.